Welcome to the Everything Epigenetics podcast, where we discuss DNA regulation and the insights it can tell you about your health. I'm Hannah Went, and I'm the founder of Everything Epigenetics. Today, my guest is Dr. Zachary Kaminsky. This is an amazing episode and one that you won't want to miss. Zach is an expert in all things epigenetics, of course, but as it relates to suicide, PTSD, and postpartum depression, all which will be the main focuses of our chat today. Really, how can we look at these outcomes as it relates to epigenetics? What, what can we learn from these looking through the lens of epigenetics? A little introduction to Zach. He received his PhD from the University of Toronto in 2008 and trained in one of the first labs studying epigenetics and psychiatry. In 2010, he developed a research program at Johns Hopkins using genome-wide DNA methylation microarrays to study brain and peripheral samples in postpartum depression, suicide, and PTSD, generating some of the first epigenetic biomarkers in psychiatry. His research program also develops artificial intelligence-driven natural language processing techniques applied to social media data from Twitter, which we'll also be discussing today, for the purpose of prediction of future risk to suicidal thoughts and behaviors. His group currently is also developing and evaluating novel digitally delivered suicide interventions, leveraging these technologies. As a member of Suicide Prevention Ottawa, Zach is involved in the implementation of suicide prevention initiatives for suicidal youth and clinical populations. He is super driven and passionate about his work. I'm excited to hear your feedback and your thoughts on this episode. And now for my guest, Zach Kaminsky. Welcome to the Everything Epigenetics podcast, Zach. Thanks for being here with me today. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So I gave our, our listeners, you know, a brief introduction. I, I pre-recorded, you know, put that in the beginning of our, our episode, but I want to hear it from you. You know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your journey, where you ended up, how, how you got to where you are today. So can you just talk a little bit about that, how you got involved in this space and um, the studies you're doing now? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a bit of a, a circuitous route that brought me to epigenetics, but um, effectively, uh, I think I have to... Uh, rewind back to uh, the beginning, which is that I met a girl. Um, I'm in Japan uh, teaching English uh, who was Canadian. And, um, you know, we fell in love. And in moving back uh, to, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, originally, um, I learned that you can't just move to Canada from the U.S. if you want to. And so uh, I had to get uh, a visa, an AFTA visa that would get me up there. And so, you know, the only thing I could do, you know, I'd had some lab science experience and I was going to take any job that came to me. And um, through some connections, this person starting an epigenetics lab reached out. And uh, at that time, I was a technician at Hopkins. And I recall uh, some of the doctors uh, that I were working for uh Obviously, you know, with a bit of a conflict, if they wanted to keep me, they were like, oh, you know, epigenetics in psychiatry. Uh, are you sure? I mean, we really don't think that's going anywhere. And I was like, uh, I don't care. I just need to get up to Toronto. So um, I took this job uh, and really thrilled that I did. We, um, I was under Art Patronus, who um, is really a visionary in psychiatric epigenetics, um, he was doing a lot of the, the groundwork to really push the, the theories that epigenetics was important in psychiatry. And so I was his uh, technician for a while and then eventually, you know, entered a graduate stream. Um, also because uh, that girl who is now my wife, um, 
Sharamar Kaminsky uh, uh, basically said, you know, you should you should uh, do graduate school. And so I, I went through the paces there and found myself uh, graduating, um, having done a Ph.D. in a field that was just becoming hot, um, a field that I had a lot of training in. We helped to create some of the first microarray technologies, uh, you know, uh, technically uh, challenging and technically noisy as they were, you know, we were really sort of, I think, on the forefront of, of trying to investigate the importance of epigenetic in a number of uh, biological situations, including psychiatry, but other things like twins and um, uh, things where environment and um, uh, stochasticity of uh, methylation changes over time were, were being figured out. Uh, so that's really the uh, the long story of how I got into epigenetics. It was sort of I stumbled into it, uh, and uh, uh, my wife, to her credit, um, suggested I you know try to become more professional. Uh, and uh, I'm glad I listened to her. Yeah, well, I I love those stories that are always you know they kind of happen by by chance and they're random. And I'm a sucker for a good love story. Those are like I love the cheesy you know rom com movies and whatnot. So no, I I really like that, and that has to be really interesting and fun and more of like a discovery phase that you're you were on the forefront of this new field and, and just kind of taking a, a leap of faith and, and really you know being a mover at, at the beginning of it so um that's what i'm excited to you know obviously talk about and chat with you today i know you mentioned your current work focuses more on on epigenetics and psychiatry but more in particular you really specialize in you know suicide ptsd and, and postpartum uh, depression, um, which again is, is going to be our main main focus today. But what do you? Can you talk about some of the work you're you're doing now, um, and to a further extent, um, and and maybe tell us about your favorite too. I'm always curious to hear about what your favorite is to to study. Yeah. So, um, gosh, what are we doing now? Uh, lots of things. You know. Um, uh, you know, we're still uh, focusing on on suicide epigenetics, but really focusing now on uh, postpartum depression epigenetics um, is what I'm excited about now. Um, you know, with epigenetic changes being so variable and being influenced by changing environment, um, the, the, the really a trouble with studying epigenetics is that a lot of the times the disease has already occurred, people are already under treatment, right? But postpartum depression is one of those few psychiatric diseases that you know when it's likely to happen, which is, you know, after giving birth uh, to a baby. And so, you know, that gives you an opportunity to uh, measure uh, the blood or whatever you want to measure with epigenetics, whatever tissue um, beforehand. Um, and so, you know, I'm really excited about working on that because uh, about maybe 11 years ago or uh, 12, um, we've discovered a set of epigenetic biomarkers that more prospectively predictive of postpartum depression. Right now, um, I have a, uh, I'm a co-founder of a startup company, Dionysus Digital Health, that's trying to uh, really market these uh, biomarkers, bring them uh, to the forefront, make them them useful. Um, so that's exciting because, um, you know, I remember a decade ago or, or whenever when we first published this. Um, you know, I was a younger scientist then, and uh, those were my first like news appearances, you know, postpartum depression biomarkers discovered. And I was at Johns Hopkins as well, uh, my laboratory there. And, you know, when you're at a, a place like that with a lot of clout, um, when you announce a discovery, you get a lot of press. Um, so, 
you know, here I was thrust on the world stage, uh, making uh, news articles come out and basically they're like, well, when is the test going to be? And I had no idea. <laughs> so, um, but we've been studying it now, you know, continue to um, expand our, our understanding of this for like the next 10 years. We've done a lot of replication studies. We've done neuroimaging with these um, biomarkers to try to get into the brain, so to speak. We even have some interesting human models where, you know, uh, estrogen has been knocked down with a, a pharmacological agent. And then, you know, our biomarkers predict who's going to get depressed um, after that happens. But, you know, it's really exciting. Um, that's unpublished um, data, but, you know, we'll get it out there eventually. Um, so, yeah, now it's really exciting to, to finally be trying to move uh, that forward into uh, being out there to people. Definitely. There are all these, you know, I get all the Google alerts. I'm, I'm set up for all the alerts from all the journals and whatnot. And every time a paper comes out, I get so excited, um, especially as it has, it relates to, to pregnancy and these different markers. And I always think in my head too, oh, this is such a cool finding, but when will it become commercially available? And, you know, we can start testing for this. I think people are, are really excited to start getting this in, in their own hands and, and being able to identify markers and, and find maybe different interventional therapies that work for them. So I found it interesting too, I know it's um, you know rather obvious, but like you said, the, the timing for the postpartum depression—that's that's nice. Epigenetics is, is a good way to measure it because obviously, yeah, we know when that's going to happen. But in in my studies and kind of what I spend spend my time looking into is, is a lot of the interventional trials with epigenetics, and it's really hard to say, okay, when do you get the peak effect from the intervention, and then number two, how long does that intervention last? So it's really hard to time you know, obviously you get a baseline, but the after uh, kind of epigenetic test. So I think we just need more and more of that. And we don't know until we start to measure. So that that can be a little frustrating in, in the field. <laughs> yeah. And it's not cheap to run, you know, if you want to serially uh, test thing. I have a, a collaborator who um, does sleep research and, you know, she was saying, oh, we could do like circadian rhythm. And, you know, at first you're like, yeah, yeah, we could do that. And like I have samples from, you know, multiple time points, you know, over, of the day over multiple weeks. And like, I'm just thinking, oh gosh, this is going to be really pricey. Even if we use, you know, pyrosequencing, the least expensive sort of methylation assessments. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, cost can be prohibitive when it comes to uh, these sorts of technologies, especially with genome-wide technologies that, um, you know, are a bit more agnostic, but give you a better chance of finding uh, whatever is uh, real. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and the interventions I, I was kind of mostly hinting at or, or thinking about in the back of my mind are like the stem cells and the exosomes because then it's like all about timing and, and kind of the type and, and differences. So it, yeah, it, it can become very, very pricey and hard. Well, um, you know, you're, you're a specialist in this space. So, and, and I want to hear it from, from an expert and dig a little bit further into just why is it important to study these subjects? You know, the postpartum depression, uh, the PTSD, the, the suicide, you know, um, what, by, by looking at epigenetics, what can we learn about those through through that lens? Or, you know, I know that's rather obvious, again, but would rather hear it from you as a as an expert. No, no, it's a great it's a great um, question, because, um, you know, I think we need to back up and think, all right, yes, why epigenetics? And, and the, the big why, uh, which I think has remained constant for a little while, is because there's hope in epigenetics that we'll find something that we haven't found elsewhere. Right. So by contrast, pure genetics, um, looking at DNA sequence, you know, that had a lot of hope behind it when, you know, the, the genome was sequenced and then, you know, NIH spent 
millions upon millions of dollars um, trying to do genome-wide association studies and saying we're finally going to understand and solve, you know, these diseases like uh, schizophrenia, um, depression, and uh, you know, it, it hasn't really panned out. Um, those are, you know, they're complex non-Mendelian diseases. And as my supervisor uh, back in the day, Art Patronus, the visionary, um, would say, you know, these not complex non-Mendelian features, having um, twin discordance, for example, um, just having age of onset be, you know, right after puberty or, you know, onset like postpartum depression after hormonal fluctuations uh, that happen during pregnancy. You know, typical genetics can't explain that. But the epigenome really sits at the intersection of genes and environment. It can be modified by the environment. It can be changed by the genome. And so I've always liked to think of it as the um, most measurable common underlying denominator of both the effects of nature and nurture, right? Um, so by studying epigenetics, can we can we find things that we haven't been able to, to find before? And so, you know, uh, I set my program about uh, doing this in, um, you know, when I started my laboratory at Johns Hopkins in also looking really for biomarkers. There's sort of two sides to using epigenetics. One is understanding the etiology, which can be confounded by the sort of cause effect nature of the fact that these things can change, right? So if you're studying um, people who are depressed, they're likely on antidepressants. Um, we know that these can change you know, histone deacetylase, uh, in hip, uh, histone deacetylases and methyltransferases that in turn can affect other epigenetic marks like DNA methylation. So is what we're finding, you know, causative of the disease or is it a, you know, consequence of, of treatment or of the disease itself? Um, so, you know, epigenetics is challenging in that way, but, um, it also can be modified by a lot of these, uh, epidemiological, factors, these factors like being small for gestational age is associated with a number of mental illnesses or having early life trauma um, predisposes to um, depression and suicide or PTSD may be a little bit different depending on the timing of that trauma um, and in, in complicated ways. So it's a, it's, it's a complicated thing to study, but, you know, with the right samples and thinking carefully about all of these potential confounders and, and where does my data, you know, what is it going to be telling me? What is it useful for? It allows you to really um, ask the question, you know, is epigenetics important? And so far, you know, we think it is. So we've found a number of um, uh, really, you know, replicating interesting findings. I should mention replication, you know, is another important thing that didn't necessarily happen a lot in psychiatric genetics, but we're, you know, we, we had a finding in, in suicide um, at the uh, SKA2 locus at SCA2 that uh, has since been replicated in a number of different papers. I think there's at least been now something like 10 or 11 independent papers. Some of them may have been from us, so maybe it's only like seven other papers, but, uh, but a lot. And um, I have to say, as a scientist, you know, uh, it's great to have that external replication because um, it lets you know, okay, you know, there is something to this. This is, this is really uh, not um, likely to be chance. So, yeah. Yeah. That, val that validation work. No, I think that was beautifully 
put and explain. So thanks for, for that explanation. I really do think epigenetics is, you know, the new frontier, the new genetics, this revolution that we're seeing. And um, yeah, you know, the challenges along the way, I think is what makes it really fun. We're, we're going to run into that in, in any type of field. I think what there's 28 million different methylation markers in every single cell type. So, you know, we don't know what we don't know. We're, we're still learning. And, and I think that's what makes um, the possibilities really, really unique with this field as, as you were hinting with, with the genetics is, is more stagnant and um, didn't have a lot of replication studies there. So you led me right into my next question, though. I was going to ask you about that study, um, you know, wanting to focus on your your work more in, in the stress and the suicide realm. So you really focus more on these mechanism of actions, too, which I think is really unique about about your work. But that paper, I'm, I'm going to name the title, is uh, Stress Vulnerability and Epigenetic Variation of a Suicide Biomarker Gene, Molecular Regulation, and Neuroimaging Consequences of the SKA2. So what did you do there? What does that mean? And maybe describing that SKA2 um, to, to the listeners as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, SKA2, SKA2, uh, for easier pronunciation, you know, we really found this doing a uh, an agnostic uh, EWAS, a genome-wide association, uh, epigenome-wide association study. And SCOT2 uh, came to the top. You know, we started with um, a potentially disease-relevant tissue for suicide. We started in the brain, brain tissue, um, and actually facts sorted uh, neuronal nuclei versus non-neuronal or glial nuclei. Um, and SCOT2, you know, was one of our loci that came to the top. So, you know, we were excited about this. Actually, you know, there were four loci that came to the top, but SCOT2 was the only one that made sense biologically um, for potentially being involved in, in suicide because um, it's one of these sort of uh, at first look, not necessarily very interesting uh, microtubule associated like scaffolding uh, genes. But um, we noticed that a little bit of work had been done showing that, you know, with a yeast 2 hybrid assay, um, it associated with the glucocorticoid receptor, which is a big player in depression and suicide because, you know, it's it's one of the, it's the brake pad for the HPA axis. This is our normal stress hormone, uh, our stress response, right? So we know that stress is important for everything from crossing the road to uh, going to a meeting, uh, even waking up. Um, but, uh, you know, when the, the stress is over, uh, glucocorticoids um, bind to the GR, glucocorticoid receptor, and they help. Uh, this then transactivates into the nucleus and it expresses uh, various uh, other genes that help shut off stress, right? So it's the brake pad of the stress system. SCA2, that microtubule, uh, that scaffolding protein, it's a chaperone. It's basically like the train car that brings um, GR into the nucleus to do its job. And, and when you knock it down with siRNA, um, GR can't get into the nucleus. It can't transactivate. And so we think it's a molecular mechanism for what we see in, in folks with depression and suicide, that they can have a stress response that is extreme and then doesn't shut down, right? And it really fits into um, leading biological theories for suicide, which is diathesis stress, right? It's an underlying biological vulnerability, which on its own, you know, uh, like a brake pad, maybe it's not uh, like a brake pad on a car that is not driving isn't a problem, right? But add that stress, now your car is driving and um, you're unable to shut off the stress when you need to, you're unable to brake that car and you, uh, and you have uh, this sort of positive feedback mechanism, which results ultimately in uh, rewiring of the brain. So 
areas in the frontal uh, cortex uh, involved in impulse control and decision-making uh, are less active, and there's lower functional connectivity to sort of top-down control on the amygdala, our fear and anxiety center of the brain, right? So now we're going from a sort of epigenetic finding to an intuitive understanding of like, hey, if I'm not able to shut down impulsiveness uh, and I have like elevated fear and anxiety, you could start to envision how this might um, lead to uh, suicidal thought. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, we were able to, to look in some of our functional connectivity studies that the epigenome uh, signatures it's got to were effectively associated with fMRI signals there. And other groups in, in some of those multiple papers I mentioned have shown similar things. They've shown structural changes in, I think, the frontal pole um, and, uh, and functional connectivity changes as well. So, you know, we really think that um, it's, it's a really interesting example of uh, epigenetic factors being uh, important for uh, potentially leading to the pathophysiology of psychiatric disease. Now, one question, you know, there's still lots of things we don't know, like how does it get there, right? And I, I can share some unpublished uh, speculation uh, uh, based on unpublished data. So um, uh, I mentioned to you before the podcast that we have an ice storm today. Um, actually, Canada gets these sometimes. I'm up in uh, Ottawa. The Canada's largest natural disaster was the Quebec ice storm. I think it, it happened in 1996 or something. And there has been a methylation study done on the uh, offspring that were about 13 years old. Um, so what you know, we were able to because it's a genome-wide study, we're able to download the data and look at the maternal distress scores, and we find the sort of risk epigenetic signature in SCA2. Uh, associates with, sorry, in the 13, in the kids, in the 13 year old offspring, the, how distressed a mother was during pregnancy changes um, their SCOT2 methylation towards the, the risk phenotype. So this could be one of those sort of, you know, epigenetically passed on. I don't want to say inherited because we can confuse what goes through the germline versus, you know, in this case, it would be uh, cross placental epigenetic transmission. Yeah, transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, maybe. Right word. Okay. Um, you know, I had the good fortune. I was sitting with uh, Emma Whitelaw, uh, who's a, a famous epigeneticist, um, and she was saying uh, we were just waiting in a hotel lobby, and she's like, "I want to coin the term transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, which goes through the germline, and transgenerational epigenetic effects, which don't." So I think this. So anything like early life trauma is a transgenerational epigenetic effect because it goes through, you know, it's a mom could be depressed because of her epigenome and then pass that to her kids by being neglectful during a developmental period or generate enough cortisol during pregnancy across the placenta that that epigenetically reprograms the child. So those are the transgenerational epigenetic effects, according to Emma Whitelaw. I don't know if it I don't know if it took off or if anybody else um calls it that but uh yeah i don't know yeah i know i know dr uh michael skinner out of washington state university he does he does it in, in mostly animal-based models the um transgenerational epigenetic inheritance but i like the effect the the one where it's I, I think it's called something else too where it's not passed through through the germline but i like that i'm gonna have to look more into it in, in her work um but uh no that's great i mean that's so interesting um, to, to talk about and to think about kind of, again, the mechanism of action and how that plays through. So 
I'm going to ask a question and I probably think the answer is already, we don't know, but can you do anything about it yet? Do we know any, any hints, any information? Oh, uh, you, like, can we modify or change the epigenetic uh, code at SCA2, for example? Yeah, we don't know. You're right. We don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be really interesting to uh, to sort of effectively look at that. Um, it's one of the challenges uh, of studying epigenetics um, is, you know, these things can be malleable, but we don't know how malleable, how malleable, malleable uh, SCA2 epigenetic changes are. I mean, uh, we know that a little bit of work has been done. Um, let's see, Chloe Wong, um, who was at John Mills uh, group and then started her own group, did some of the studies showing that cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy was able to, I think, reverse FKBP5 DNA methylation uh, post-therapy. So, you know, uh, she may have done another one in a serotonin gene as well. Yep suggestions that these things can be modified um which would make sense but we haven't looked so yeah yeah well no that's a great paper i love it i'll link it um in case anyone who's listening wants to read a little bit more i highly highly encourage um one more question kind of about maybe your work in in that realm what about uh cell type heterogeneity in in the brain i know we were kind of chatting over that via via email what can you talk about what role that plays or, or may have played in that paper Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is uh, uh, one of the interesting things about epigenetics is that it, it helps to define the over 200 cell types in the human body. But that it, also I was mentioning earlier that it, it can be challenging to study. And that's one of the reasons why is because anything that has uh, a change or a, a different proportion of cell types. So we could imagine something like neurodegenerative uh, diseases like Alzheimer's disease, um, if you're looking at the brain. Um, could have a different proportion of uh, neurons to glia. Or if you had neuroinflammation, as you may expect to see um, in depression or suicide, um, then you're going to get more glial cell types. And, and what we found, um, uh, part of my first uh, project at Johns Hopkins, uh, my first R21 grant was to uh, really fax sort or isolate the neuronal and glial nuclei, which isn't super easy, but I learned the technique from Sharam Akbarian. Um, and was able to pull it off at Hopkins uh, and do epigenomic profiling there. Um, so one of the things I'm, I'm digressing a little bit uh, because we we did that in the in the SCATU story as well to to come, to find SCATU by reducing the heterogeneity. But we we're also able to create a uh, bioinformatic tool that tries to control for this um, in other people's brain tissue samples. So you can already have done your um, brain related study and uh you know found various things but the idea is you then apply this model and you get a proportion of neurons to non-neurons that you can use as a covariate um to sort of control for and understand if you know those hits are being driven by uh just by cell heterogeneity now you know so this is really important in the brain when we're when we're considering etiology um i'm kind of on the fence whether to apply this so um uh, dr hausman did this in blood. He facts sorted the various bloods, white blood cell types, um, natural killer cells, B cells, uh, CD4 and AT cells, um, granulocytes, and came up with a, an elegant model that gives you proportions of these as well that you can use as covariates. But um, I mentioned earlier, you know, there's sort of, we can look at etiology for psychiatric diseases, or we can try to leverage biomarkers. And I'm always on the fence about 
whether to apply these covariates first when I'm looking in blood. And I usually don't. And the reason is because if I just want a biomarker, if I want something that is indicative of that disease state, um, in a lot of psychiatric diseases, that's inflammation. And so we may expect to see differing cell profiles um, due to this sort of underlying disease pathophysiology. That's why we would see it in the periphery. And so I don't want to necessarily normalize that away. I need to be cognizant of that and check, hey, you know, I found these interesting genes. Are they just because of cell type heterogeneity? But at the end of the day, if that gets you a, a blood test that allows you to, to test for a disease, you know, then then that's fine. You're you're sort of in good shape. So again, being cognizant of cell heterogeneity is always important, but um, you don't necessarily always want to just normalize it away without understanding if there's an effect that you can um, glean as a proxy for something going on in your disease of interest if you're doing the biomarker study. Yeah. I think that makes sense if it if it applies to you know what you're looking at or or if it doesn't in your case I understand kind of the the backing and reasoning behind you know choosing just the one biomarker for for the psychiatric disease so no, that makes sense appreciate that that answer there um, one thing and I found a lot of news articles when I was I was writing up this agenda that I found about your work is and we were kind of talking about you know pushing this to application pushing this to commercialization. Um, so something I found fascinating is you actually created a machine learning approach that predicts future risk to suicidal ideation from social media data. So tell us more, what, what did you do there? What did you create? This is like an, an awesome product. I, again, I was reading in a bunch of different articles. Sure, yeah, no, happy to chat about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, I was at Johns Hopkins, but uh, my wife, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast is Canadian and, um, you know, kind of always wanted to move back to Canada. You know, being from Baltimore, uh, we moved there for a number of years. We thought we'd get more babysitting than we did for my kids from my parents while there. But eventually um, I got recruited back to Canada as the chair of suicide prevention research. I should say the DIFD, Matt Gainsland chair of suicide prevention research because um, uh, it's an endowed chair. They, they fund me um, and uh, my position here. So, you know, this was really with a mandate to, to, sort of address suicide in the area. And I was thinking of that stress diathesis model that I mentioned earlier, where you have an underlying biological vulnerability, like a brake pad for the stress system might not be working, but it has to meet a time of stress. That car has to be driving. And so how do we measure that stress in real time? Um, I didn't think that epigenetics alone was going to be enough. So I set about delving into uh, a bit of natural language processing work. I love to code. And um, when you're between two institutions, there's there can be a gray period where you haven't started one job and the other one is kind of winding down. So I use that as a bit of a sabbatical to learn natural language uh, processing techniques in Python. And so what this does is it takes social media posts, anything text-based, and it converts it into a number of scores for concepts related to suicide, like hopelessness. So how uh, so we use Twitter data because it's convenient and public. Um, how hopeless is this tweet? What is the burden score for this tweet? Is this a depression related tweet? You know, what number between zero and one is the sleeplessness of this tweet? And so we, we end up with a, a matrix of data um, for each tweet, and then we can apply machine learning uh, methods to, to predict uh, suicide based in people that have expressed suicidal thought on Twitter uh, versus not. Um, and so what we found was that this was really predictive of people's impending uh, suicidal thought into the future. Um, so the machine learning was able to pick up a pattern um, that 
preceded uh, people expressing suicidal thought on Twitter. Um, and we we're able to look at suicide attempts as well, which is a more severe form of suicidal behavior. So we know that more people think about suicide than act on it, um, and more people act on it than die by suicide. So, you know, being able to predict suicide attempts as well was was really quite interesting. Because Twitter data, you know, you can sort of go back in time, uh, you can sort of look at these profiles um, ahead of time. So you can, you can look for, oh, I'm coming out of a, a suicide attempt, I was at the hospital, and you can look at the, at the, the patterns before that. So yeah, we were excited that our um, algorithm seemed to, to model that uh, pretty effectively with um, about, I think, 85% accuracy um, area under the curve, if I, if I recall correctly. Um, so that's about, I think, 85% sensitive and something like 80% specific um, for suicidal thought. Yeah, so that, that was uh, an interesting technology. And because it's digital, you can do it pretty cheaply and quickly. Yeah, very cool. Is it still being like used today in, in anything or are people using that then? Yeah, so, you know, uh, in my role here, we're trying to think of, of neat ways to use this. Um, so I've come up with a couple ideas for uh, a way that you could have a, a suicide intervention app where you could have these scores and you could share them with uh, trusted confidants. And then if your score was ticking up, you know, those confidants could reach, reach out to you. Um, one of the things with suicide is it's a low base rate event. Even suicidal thought is a low base rate event, which means that no matter what, there's going to be a lot of false positives, even like a, a perfect test, 99% sensitive, 99% specific with 11 suicides per 100,000. That means a thousand false positives. So we're not like sending anyone to the hospital based on this. But if your friend saw this data and they reached out and they asked you to play basketball, you know, that would probably be a pretty tolerable intervention. Right. And we know that connections are protective. So, you know, can we leverage this in a way that's smart um, for for the field? And does having that future risk allow you to act at a time when you don't necessarily need crisis response? You know, you just need a, a few more of those protective factors. That's the theory, at least. And, and I, we'd like to be able to 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 use it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. I think, I think that's great. I think we need more, more assets like that somewhere to start and, and build off of it. So I like the, the apps and things that you're thinking of creating and, and moving forward with. So I'm going to, I'm going to have to follow along there and, and see what you come up with. Um, I'm going to switch gears completely. I appreciate your, your chat with me about the, the suicide and the PTSD based model and, and how that's already, you know, pushed to, to application with, with your um, Twitter um, application there. So I, I want to move the conversation more to the postpartum depression. I know we chatted a little bit about it in the beginning. Um, you know, you have a lot of work there. You have several pe papers that investigate how um, DNA methylation biomarkers can predict both uh, antenatal and postpartum depression. So can you, can you describe just a little bit more in detail, um, you know, some of those studies and, and what you found there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've talked a bit about the challenges of studying epigenetics in, in peripheral tissues. Um, and so, you know, to try to get around this, what the way we started uh, this study was to start with a mouse model. Um, we actually had uh, cannulas of, of estradiol in the, the mouse uh, brain in, in overectomized female mice that were there for about a normal gestational period. Um, and what this is doing is it's modeling the rise in gonadal hormones, the rise in estrogen that would happen naturally uh, in women who are pregnant. And so um, we're able to do some epigenetic profiling on uh, tiling arrays um, to really ask where does estrogen change DNA methylation in the brain? 
Um, we know, you know, estrogen receptors are steroid hormone receptors. They re recruit all these uh, epigenetic modifiers, histone, methyl transferases, and acetyl, uh, deacetylases, et cetera. So, you know, uh, reason to believe that estrogen would change DNA methylation. We saw big changes. Then what we did was um, uh, in collaboration with my uh, clinical collaborator, um, and friend, Dr. Jen Payne, uh, who used to run the Women's Mood Disorder Center at Johns Hopkins and is now um, doing that at, at University of Virginia. Um, we looked in women in the blood when estrogen was high. And what we found was a really interesting relationship. At the loci where estrogen changed DNA methylation in the brain, there was more epigenetic change in the women who were going to get postpartum depression, right? So she had a prospective study and we know uh, we knew who was going to get depressed and who wasn't, but we had blood from third trimester. So, you know, there was this correlation suggesting that women who were going to get postpartum depression were more sensitive to estrogen epigenetically. And so then from there, we just followed that with, oh, we should be able to leverage this. Um, and we were able to uh, use some machine learning methods to uh, boil this down to a set of loci um, at TTC9B and HB1BB3, which um, prospectively predicted risk with about 80% accuracy. These genes are pretty interesting. Um, so HB1BP3, you know, we know it's involved in, in cognition. At the time we didn't know, but like I said, it's been 10 years um, and other people have done interesting work. So they've knocked it out and um, they've knocked it out in pregnant mouse mothers. And when they knock it out, the pups die because the mom stopped taking care of them, which is, which is really interesting for a, a mouse model. Mm -hmm knock out a gene and they stop taking care of the pups. Um, and so we also know uh, with TTC9B, there's been less work done, but we know one of its close homologs, TTC9A, um, if it's knocked out and then you give estradiol supplement, uh, uh, supplement with estradiol, uh, the mice become very anxious and there's you know changes in serotonin signaling in the dorsal prophate. So um, seems to make mechanistic sense. Uh, if we think about, go back to HB1BP3 for a second, one of the things that we haven't published on yet um, but we were funded by NIH to do a prospective neuroimaging study. So we've got functional MRI at two and six weeks postpartum. And um, what we see is that the biomarker levels associate with changes in functional connectivity in areas of the brain associated with maternal response to infant cue, right? So what does that mean? It just means that if your baby's crying, you know, and you don't have postpartum depression, you know, you respond to that and it's healthy for, for the baby to do so. Whereas postpartum depression, you know, can result in uh, a failure to sort of clue into those cues and maybe not act, um, which in turn becomes very epigenetically damaging to the baby. Um, we know that this can change the epigenome and lead to uh, later life psychiatric, you know, stress-related comorbidities. Um, and so, you know, we think that the biomarkers are, are really interesting in, uh, in the fact that they're uh, basically potentially changing the functional connectivity, or at least associated. They're just marking, just marking these areas of the brain. We don't, we can't say they're changing. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's an interesting example of going from mouse brain to human blood and then back to, back to the brain. And I should, you know, I'm going to, stop here for not stop, but I'm going to say real quick, I think it's important when doing epigenetic studies, um, not to stop at those, you know, case control associations. I think it's really important to have, you know, 
other endophenotypes, be they neuroimaging endophenotypes in your, in your tissue of interest, or be they um, uh, epigenomes you know, in the brain, or even just cortisol levels, if you know cortisol is important for the disease. If you have a set of 500 loci that come from your first EWAS, run it through, do an EWAS against those endophenotypes and take the ones that, that cross-reference because that's how we found replicating loci. These loci, this 80%, it replicates in over six cohorts now. So, you know, um, just like our SCA2 finding that has a number of independent papers, um, we've been independently replicated for these and we've done a lot of replication work ourselves. And so how do you find replicating loci? That's how I do it. I cross-reference with endophenotypes. Yeah, I think the re reliability, um, especially with these epigenetics, because it's so new, we, we have to do it. It's kind of something that people glaze over and just hope like you know about it, right? Um, but I think it's absolutely needed. So I, I appreciate you bringing that point up. And then, um, yeah, I, I'm obviously obsessed with epigenetics. I love it. I'm very biased. I think it's a great biomarker. But I will be the first to tell you that you absolutely need some other type of phenotypic marker or outcome to measure alongside of it. Obviously, the more we have, the better it becomes. If you have other, you know, omic data as well, like the metabolome data, transcriptome, phenome, you know, the the phenotypic kind of um, correlation, then that's great. We, we just need to learn more about the correlation, whether it be correlation, causation, you know, we can get into that conversation as well. So I'm, I'm glad you paused and, and brought up that point. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, the work you're doing in the, in the postpartum depression is, is just, just fascinating. Um, what about the, the application there? I know we talked, you know, about the app you made for Twitter for, for the, the suicide and, and kind of, you know, using machine learning. Um, do you imagine that being commercialized with the work you're doing there or, or what do you think that that would look like? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think now with, uh, a decade's worth of replication, this just keeps working, you know, and, uh, uh, we are hoping to be able to really combine the digital and the um, epigenetic uh, technologies to be able to predict risk um, in women. So, um, you know, predict predicting risk using the epigenetic biomarkers basically entails using a blood sample taken during pregnancy. Um, and then, you know, we can prognosticate risk using the the models that we've created um, over the years. But um, we can potentially pair this with a digital signature. And this is what uh, our startup company, Dionysus Digital Health, is, is hoping to do, is to have an app that can guess at risk um, based on social media um, using a digital signature and then uh, potentially be able to uh, triage folks and offer the epigenetic test uh, to folks you know, to confirm um, risk. And we, you know, I think the digital elements are, of course, uh, cheap to to run and, and quick, but I think there's value in having an epigenetic test beyond that. Uh, and that is psychiatric disease is stigmatized, especially postpartum depression. You know, it's one of those diseases that, you know, the main problem with it is that it gets missed. So it gets missed by doctors because um, they may or may not screen um, consistently, not all doctors, but, uh, you know, certain, uh, places, um, and women don't seek treatment. They may not recognize symptoms and they may not seek treatment. Um, and we know that only 40% of postpartum depression cases tend to be found. And I think of that, it's only like 20% that are actually treated. Right. Um, yet the rates are, you know, 13 to 20% of the population. So that's, uh, 
you know, anywhere from four to 800,000 new cases of postpartum depression every year in the US. Um, and so what, only 20% of that is getting treated. So what if you had a blood test that said, hey, watch out for this, right? Would you think, oh, I'm just not sleeping or, oh, my partner is just not sleeping or, hey, you know, didn't that test say you were gonna be at risk? You should watch out for this. It, could this be depression? Go to your OB at your six, you know, week post giving birth screen and ask to be screened, right? Um, this is what's not happening, but we think that a blood test could could prompt this. And, you know, I should also add that um, companies are coming out with new postpartum depression treatments that are allopregnanolone analogs that are really interesting, like uh, Brexanolone is on the market, uh, which is an infusion, and Zeranolone, I believe, is, um, uh, you know, on the frontier, it's going to be coming. Sage Therapeutics, I believe, makes these. So, um, you know, there's going to be new um, new therapeutics that could be paired with understanding if you're at risk. Um, whether or not you can take those beforehand um, to never get depression, or you just take them when you get depression, um, you know, I can't speak to that uh, at this point. But there's lots of potential, so we're excited. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited too. I'm excited for you all. And and again, to keep to keep following along, I think we'll just see it. it that part of the space boom, you know, with with pregnancy, it, it already really is in fertility, and then the pregnancy, and then after pregnancy as well. So I think you know we'll start to see a lot of those those you know hopefully um, assets um, and, and resources be available. You know, I think that the digital screening is really great because it's a cheap you know way, like you mentioned, to to maybe screen for people who may be more wanting to get this test or, or fit that criteria. But yeah, a simple, you know, finger prick, or if they're already taking your blood, just pipette that onto the blood spot card, you know, send it in, you get results back in a couple of weeks, take an intervention therapeutic. You know, I think that sounds pretty great and something we need to focus on more. It all comes back to the preventative approach. I think I say that like in every single episode, <laughs> um, but you know, that's, that's why we're here. Um, so yeah, we're getting, getting to the end of this podcast. Just, just a couple more questions, uh, left for you, Zach. What, um, are you most excited about now? Like, I, I know we talked about some of your current research and stuff. Is there anything that like you wake up and you think of, and you can't get to you can't wait to get on your, your computer and start working? I mean, I am really excited about this postpartum depression, uh, direction. I think, um, I'm, I'm excited to, you know, so I, I mentioned earlier that I love coding, um, you know, really just, uh, I love doing analysis and seeing what we can do, uh, with data. So anytime I have like a new set of data, that's, you know, I, I pretty much drop everything else and just delve into that. Um, even if I should be, I procrastinate work with, with data analysis, which is technically work, but, um, yeah. I was gonna say, it's not that bad, right? <laughs> you know, you're still doing something, but maybe something you like to do a little bit more. I have, I have no, um, coding experience. If I could go back to school, I think that's what I would do is like, you know, bioinformatics um, and and kind of learn that now. But yeah, I, I absolutely want to learn it, you know, and talk with chat GPT. Maybe they can teach me or, you know, take a couple of those free classes that are available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, encoding. We have one interesting thing that is unpublished that, you know, I mentioned, you know, we can predict suicidal thought from Twitter data. We've started to look at the responses and the other people that respond to them on Twitter and see if we can score based on the responses, whether people will get better or worse. Um, and we found that we can. So, you know, then you could imagine, oh, well, can we make a tool that tells sort of like, you know, with a chat GPT sort of help, tells you what to say, like what sort of response uh, might be better? And can we leverage their own social media data to personalize that? So like, 
this person, you need to talk about some of their loves, like recording music, right? Maybe that's what they're into uh, based on, you know, from what we can glean. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, I'm excited about that, uh, but there's no, there's never enough hours in the day. It's, uh, you know, uh, to, to really bang all these things out, but, uh, but I'm yeah. Oh, cool. I, yeah, I, I hear you on that as well. That, that'd be, yeah, if you can reply based on their previous tweets and their likes and their interests or even what's in their bio or, you know, different links. Um, I, I think that's, that's really fascinating. Well, um, yeah, you know, we've, we've really come to, to the end of this, this amazing podcast. I have one last question for you. I ask everyone this at the end of the podcast. Zach, if you could be any animal in the world, what would you be and why? Oh, my 11 year old asks me this a lot. Uh, I should have, uh, Yes, but it always changes. Um, if I could be one anim animal, what would I be? Hmm. Um, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on this question. I was so confident with all the other questions, but today, <laughs> this is the one that stumps me. What animal would I be? Even though I get asked a lot. Um, I think for my son's sake, I'll say a cat. I'm, I'm very much a cat person. Um, you know, Going a little solo, a little uh, doing my own thing. Um, also like to chill out and, you know, I don't know. Uh, and uh, yeah. No, I like it. You know, you have to stand by it too. Don't look back when you, when you listen again and say, oh, I wish I would have said this. You stand, stand by that cat. That's right. The podcast went great except for the animal question. No, I'm standing by cat. Definitely. A hundred percent. Good, good. Well, um, no, like I said, this has been great. I've, I've learned so much my, myself and, and look forward to, to kind of going back through your papers with now the knowledge that I've gained. So for, for any listeners who want to learn a little bit more about you, um, where can they find you? You know, webpage, Twitter, I don't know if you're, you're on any of that. Yeah, I mean, I don't really use uh, as much as I use social media in my research. I'm not really great about um, posting on it. Um, you know, I have a uh, I'm sure the, the Institute of Mental Health Research at the University of Ottawa is, uh, at the Royal is uh, probably has a lot of information on me um, that would be good. Um, so, yeah, I would go there as a first uh, start. And that's the email I tend to answer, too. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll point point people in that direction if they have any questions or, or want to learn a little bit more. So. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening in and joining me at Everything Epigenetics podcast. Remember, you have control over your DNA. So tune in next time to learn more. Thanks, Zach. Thank you.